Okay, we are going to talk about Gnosticism. And I don't have worksheets for you today, so there are things on the edge of your uh, tables if you want to write anything down. But Gnosticism is one of the most popular uh, heresies um, from the very beginning, and it lasted for centuries. Uh, some would argue it is still going on today. And Gnosticism comes from this word gnosis, gnosis, which means knowledge. It's where we get the word knowledge. And so Gnosticism believed that a person uh, was saved by being initiated into a special kind of knowledge. Uh, the material world is evil, they felt, and our goal as Christians is to escape that material world. Um, and what would help you escape it is having the special knowledge. That's why it's called Gnosticism. Now, we have heard from some of our other heresies how the minute the belief would start, they would immediately kind of start their own church or their own sort of sect, you know, not Gnosticism. Gnosticism loved to go into the local congregation. They saw it as their feeding ground. Um, I'm making them very sinister, but they love to go to um, sort of the most faithful looking Christians they could find in different congregations. And they would pull them aside and say, you know, there's something different about you than these others. Right. And you're on your way to special knowledge. And if you want that special knowledge, I can help you get it. And so they would infiltrate themselves within the congregations. They didn't want to form new congregations. They wanted to be within those congregations and to set up two levels within the congregation. Those who had special knowledge and had uh, reached gnosis, and then those who hadn't and would serve them. <laughs> you know, you need that group, too. So that's what they initially did. They would infiltrate these uh, congregations and they would say very um, things that would make you feel really good about yourself. You know, they'd say, well, your neighbors are so earthbound. They aren't ready for this kind of knowledge. But you, you know, so they would say things like that so that folks would really get very interested in them. Um, we didn't have a single one of the Gnostics writings. We didn't have a single one. We only had the people who wrote against them. You know, we had their writings, um, but they were writing things from the middle 100s, but we just didn't have any of them until 1945 when um, archaeologists in Egypt found 52 Gnostic writings. And I love this story. They found them right next to where there would have been a monastery in the 400s, um, right next to not on the monastery, but they found them buried in the earth next to the monastery. And they have wondered, why in the world were they there? We don't understand why these Gnostic writings would be next to this Christian monastery. Well, we don't know, but the best working theory is that in the mid-300s, the church is setting the canon of Scripture. So what that means is they're deciding Genesis is in, Song of Solomon is in, Gospel of Luke is in, Revelation is in, you know, and they're deciding what isn't in. Gospel of Thomas is out. Gospel of Judas is out, right? So they're setting the canon, what's called the canon of scripture. And um, there were all kinds of instructions going out in the mid 300s that said, if you are still reading this other list of books 
as if it's scripture, you're going to get in trouble. It's not scripture. You know, we've set the canon. And so what we think might have happened is that this particular monastery really loved these Gnostic scriptures, but they knew if they were found on their property, they'd get in trouble. And so we, they think they sent somebody to slip out and bury them right near the monastery. So this is what they found. Um, some of them we knew about, we knew had existed, um, and some you will know the names of probably. Um, Gospel of Thomas. Um, has anybody read Gospel of Thomas? Have you? I haven't. You, you need to. Very compelling. See, there you go. Have you read the Gospel of Judas? Have you read the Gospel of Mary? I'm so excited. I, okay, next week, forget it. We're not going to do modern heresies. You're going to tell us all about Thomas and Mary and Judas. Uh, those are three of them at least. Um, but the Gnostic texts were not just, not just extra gospels. I mean, I say not just additional gospels. They were also these elaborate uh, creation stories. They really loved um, the Gnostics had elaborate hierarchies of created beings and creation stories. Um, and so a lot of what they found were those. And then they also the third set of books they found, the third type of books was um, secret teachings of the apostles. So there was a set in the 52 that was like secret teachings of the apostles. There was a set that was additional gospels. And there was a set that was these elaborate creation um, stories. Uh, and that's what they found in 1945. Here's some of the basics of what they taught. Gnosticism has all kinds of fingers everywhere. But here's some of the basics of what those taught. Um, as I mentioned before, they saw the material world as of very little value. At its best, it got in our way of being with God, and at its worst, it was evil in and of itself. The material world was very low value. Uh, number two, uh, the, way they, uh, the way they talked about the material world being of low value, and then with Genesis 1 and 2, you know, the creation source, they said um, that wasn't God who created the world. Not as in creator God, the big guy. That was a lesser deity. They had a whole hierarchy of deities, of divine beings. And it was a lesser deity who I swear they use in the show Stranger Things, but somebody tell me, the Demiurge. Is that what they used for this? Someone tell me later. Um, the Demiurge was this lesser, um, this lesser creator God, little g, God. And that's who they said created the world. And um, <laughs> him. And so one of the things that they said explains evil in the world and suffering in the world and all of that, the why the world isn't perfect, is because Demiurg um, was, had so little power, either had so little power, or two was malicious. And either out of his lack of power or maybe some maliciousness, he created a world with suffering. So that is how um, they could look at Genesis 1 and 2, but they would take that text and they would turn it. 
And they would say, that is not creator, capital C, creator, capital G, God. That is a lesser deity, the demiurge, and he's malicious. Um, yeah. So then they said that beyond this material world, the goal is that there's this true spiritual reality um, that that we have a goal of getting to. And that's called the plerama, plerama. And a Gnostic's goal is to discover their identity and to join in with the plerama, to be uh, one with this original mystical goal. And to do that, you have to be freed of the constraints of what Demiurg made, right? So what they thought about Jesus, they thought he was the true Gnostic teacher. They thought that he, he came so that he could give us our identity back and take us back to the Plerima. Um, they also believed that he didn't really die. Um, he just shed the material world. And in fact, in the Gospel of Judas, um, for those who've read the Gospel of Judas, uh, Jesus says to Judas in the Gospel of Judas, he says, Blessed are you, Judas, because you will set me free from the man who clothes me, not his tailor. You set me free from this like material clothing I wear. Thank you, Judas, for setting me free. So uh, what Judas does is this wonderful service to Jesus um, for the Gnostic view because he helps him get to the Plerima himself. So their favorite texts, I know, their favorite texts were Genesis 1 and 2. They love Genesis 1 and 2. And um, does anybody want to guess what their favorite gospel was? The one where Jesus could be accused of maybe hovering over the earth just a little bit. John. They loved the Gospel of John. And in fact, the very first commentary we have any evidence of, of being written on the Gospel of John, was written by a Gnostic. Um, he wrote the first commentary, a guy named Heracleon. Um, in case you need to write that down. Uh, he wrote the very first uh, commentary about the Gospel of John because that's how important that text was for them. And he wrote it as a Gnostic. There are some who have argued um, that John is a Gnostic gospel. There were some when they were making the canon of scripture who said, I don't know if John should be in there. Um, and if you read them side by side, there is a quite different Jesus. I hesitate to put it that way. There is quite a different image for Jesus in John's gospel as there is in the other three. Just start with the prologue, for goodness sakes. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, like Luke is like, and a baby was born and put in a feed box. You know, I mean, very different, um, very different understandings of, uh, of who Jesus is. So there were even folks at the time when the scriptures were being bound um, into one book who said, should we be careful here? Is John himself a Gnostic gospel? Um, the argument made then and that has been made since is that John knew of Gnosticism and he used some of the categories of it, but then um, sort of wrote his gospel in at a slant from it, um, knowing what he was doing. Uh, 
to show that he wasn't Gnostic. But um, let me tell you the three ways they opposed them. And then we'll see what questions you have. I love this. So there were basically three lines of attack that other Christians used against Gnostics. And the first was, this is my favorite, because nothing changes under the sun. The first was, they said, oh, you purport that the body is just like this clothing that we just need to shed. And, and you don't think it's worth anything. So I bet you're sexually deviant. That's what Christians would say to Gnostics. And they would say, I bet if we started digging, there would be a lot of physical immorality in what we saw in you, you know, right? So this was the very first line of attack they used against Gnostics. And the funny thing about it, the ironic thing about it is they were almost always just the opposite. They were very ascetic, um, as in they would, they felt like this was nothing. And so they didn't want to treat it with anything. They would withhold food from themselves. They would withhold sex. They would withhold um, any sort of form of pleasure. They were more ascetes than they were gluttons. Um, but that was one they tried, uh, and it didn't really stick for them. But um, the other way they they did, uh, the two other things they did, which did stick and which held uh, because they were truer to what was going on, was they said, no, you're giving us a really good reason to set it down in writing that there is one God, maker of heaven and earth. That's where we get some of those initial statements of belief. There is one God, one creator, maker of heaven and earth. Forget the demiurg nonsense. So some of those in our Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed, in some of these early creeds we're reading, um, they're, they're responding to Gnostics when they're really pounding in on the idea of one creator, maker of heaven and earth, um, not a lesser God. And then the second thing um, that really stuck was what I told you about with the monastery and hiding the documents. Between our friend Marcion from a few weeks ago, which this is the same time period, and Marcion, remember, only wanted a few texts from the whole Bible. He didn't want any Old Testament. He only wanted Luke, I think it was. He really was very particular, right? Um, between the Marcionites running around and then the Gnostics running around who have no problem with scriptures and in fact are adding more and more and more, between the two, that's why they set the canon. That's why they did it when they did. They would have needed to eventually. You know, you, I mean, you have to have a book of readings. Um, someone needs to decide. We have a book of readings. But it was really those two groups that instigated the timing of having um, a set of readings. And has anybody seen the Da Vinci Code or read it? Of course you have. You should. It's super fun. And it's in Paris, for goodness sake. Yeah, that's the one in Paris, right? Well, so in the Da Vinci Code, it refers to some of this, these councils and such, right? And how they were used to sublimate, you know, the secret teachings and the true teachings. And they didn't want the real word to get out, right? And so those were hidden and, and these statements of belief were formed and other texts were thrown away, right? That's part of the Da Vinci Code. Well, uh, there's enough truth in something to make it dangerous, right? Yes, texts were excluded um, from the canon of scripture and they were decided from statements of belief. You can read those texts, you know. Mary's going to teach about them next week. And, uh, but, but, 
But think of this. The reason, one of the reasons they excluded those texts, the, the texts they excluded, they excluded for at least two reasons. One is they were not, they couldn't be certain of authenticity, even at the time, even in the 200s. They just were not certain. This was written when it was said it was written and, and by, you know, they just weren't certain of its provenance. Um, and the second reason was, if text could pass that test, the second reason was that um, its goal was secret teachings and this secret level of knowing. And the main jest, the main thrust of a canon and of the scriptures is to say that Jesus isn't secret. And there isn't some sort of secret teaching that only insiders get. Um, but no, these scriptures are out there and visible and 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 there's no back door you know there's no hiding um and if only you knew the secrets you'd know more so they didn't like that they didn't like that idea that there'd be these christians who knew more than everybody else what do you think of the gnostics Isn't that interesting? He has almost no role in the other Gospels. But yes, that, that perhaps the Gospel of John was written knowing the Gospel of Thomas was around and didn't like it. Didn't like it and thought, you're no hero, buddy. <laughs> you're no hero. A, you're going to miss the meeting. And then B, you're going to doubt, you know, when you finally get to the meeting. Um, that's interesting because we don't think about these Gospels being written in community like that, right? We don't think about the Gospels being like, Thomas, you have always been a thorn in my side. <laughs> you know, I'm going to clean up where you made mistakes. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Gnosticism, I mean, it continues officially, oh, uh, probably till the 800s, hundreds and hundreds of years. It, it continues officially. And like so many of the heresies we've talked about, it continues unofficially uh, for a long, long time. How many different um, churches or or sort of um, small sect groups have we heard about that said, if you would just come and stay on our compound, real bluntly, um, we'll share with you the secret teachings. We'll share with you the secrets to the universe and to true Christianity. I mean, it's it's a very compelling siren song to think that you're going to be led into a club that will set you apart from others, um, which is not all that Gnosticism was. It was also this set of beliefs about creation and about, you know, but, but kind of at its core, what really draws you is, well, I want the secret teachings, you know, Yes, we've got, we've talked about that issue before too, right? Like how much do I need God for salvation? How much can I do on my own? And yes, with the secret teaching, then you're well on your way. All I see around me is humility, Tom. No, no egomania anywhere. Just humble humility, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Any other thoughts about that or questions about that?
Okay, it has been hard enough before now, right? They've been trying to figure out who is Jesus. They've been trying to figure out what is salvation. I mean, these are not easy subjects. These are not things you're just going to check off your list and move on. But now we're going to move to the Holy Spirit. Oh, no. That is that's that is even harder. Um, and here is um, a group. I'm going to tell you about one ancient group and then one more modern group from the 1300s. Um, but the ancient group are this fun name, not the Montanus from Montana, but the Montanus. Well, I assume maybe it's the Montanus. Uh, the Montanus. And I love these guys. There were three of them initially. And uh, we're talking the mid-100s, really early. And what they believed, I'll tell you about the people in a minute, but what they believed was that they could directly channel the Holy Spirit. Uh, they could directly channel messages from God. Um, and there was even some question, it got a little iffy on whether or not their initial three leaders claimed that they were the paraclete, they were the Holy Spirit, or were they claiming that the Holy Spirit was working through them? It, it got a little iffy, apparently, um, in the day-to-day -day on whether or not they were proclaiming that they were the Holy Spirit or that the Holy Spirit spoke through them. So that's what they believed, was that they could directly channel um, God and become the paraclete. So Montanus was the guy it was named after. And he was a new Christian, and he's traveling around Asia Minor, which is like Iran, places like that. And uh, he meets up with two women, uh, Priscilla, not Priscilla from the Bible, I don't think, uh, that would be interesting, would it? And Maximilla, Priscilla and Maximilla. He meets up with these two women, and they form a group. They start to have a nickname. They call them the Three. Like the three have come to our town. The three are in our area. The three, right? Because they would hold worship services that were ecstatic. Um, and they would uh, have direct revelations from the spirit in these times of worship. They would call their followers to fast and to pray more, to, to not eat or drink, and, and to pray more so that they could have direct revelations uh, from the spirit. Um, and they, they offered charismatic worship back in the mid 100s, really early. Uh, now you would think this is not a problem, right? Does anybody remember Acts 2? When the disciples are, they got flavor and they look like they're drunk. And, you know, I mean, this is not that long before. Um, but it was a real problem because here's what some of the messages that the Holy Spirit gave them said. Um, they said the spirit is speaking through me and the spirit does not like a hierarchical church. Does not like a church with levels, bishops, cardinals, you know, they don't have all of it yet, but they've got, they're starting to have hierarchy in the church. Um, that's not going to be popular, right? Um, but they, and they said, and the spirit is speaking through me and the spirit is calling all of us to greater moral rigor, uh, to, to asceticism, to an asceticism life, an ascetic life of fasting and prayer and celibacy and 
poverty and you know all kinds of things. There are no monastic movements yet, by the way, which is sort of an interesting thing that the church will figure out what to do with these groups. They don't know what to do with them yet. Um, and so uh, they said that we all need to have more moral rigor because Jesus is coming soon. He's coming very soon, and the Spirit has told me. Spirit speaking through me. So um, this got them very upset. This got the church very upset. Uh, and it's really interesting because we're not. I'm not quite sure why. You know, there are some who have argued that they got upset because these two women were with him, um, and they were speaking for the spirit too, and saying that the spirit spoke through them. And in fact, one of the women told a story. I wasn't going to tell you this, but I will. One of the women told a story. She said, um, I was dreaming one day in the night. I had a dream. And in the dream, Jesus came to me and rested beside me. No big look, right? And in my dream, Jesus was a woman. They didn't like that. They didn't like that. So they were all... um, it was condemned as a heresy very quickly, uh, Montanism. And uh, it's very interesting because the church, I mean, charismatic Christianity uh, existed then and has existed throughout, right? Pentecostalism is the fastest growing Christianity in the world. Fastest growing Christianity in the world is Pentecostalism, um, which is charismatic worship, right? So they don't know what to do with the charismatic. Some of these heresies, I have to tell you, I've been kind of on the Orthodox Church side, right? I mean, we really, we do believe certain things. This one gets a little nebulous, just from my point of view. They do not know what to do with charismatic worship yet, and so they just condemn it. And they do not know what to do with these uh, groups in the church who want to have more rigorous lives who want to take on vows, right? They don't know what to do with them yet. Out of them, other charismatic groups would form, like the Franciscans, like, you know, these other brotherhoods and these other um, things for women as well, for nuns. Um, But until they figure out what to do for folks who really want to take on a more distinctive life, a more radical life, um, they condemn them. So these three they condemned. Uh, Priscilla, Maximilla, and Montanus um, by 200. They had condemned Montanism and his teachings. And speaking of having a problem with women, let me tell you a little bit about the one from the 1300s. This one was called the Free Spirit Movement. And it was the belief that our human will has to be annihilated by God's will. And that in this life, we can fully have our will then replaced by God's will in this life. Now, this was uh, led by a woman, Marguerite Porete. Marguerite Porete, a French woman. I just have to, like, yeah, Mary knows my love of French. Anyway, uh, she she wrote a book called The Mirror of Simple Souls. And in the book, she has three personifications mostly talking to each other in the book. Uh, she has, who are they? She has, oh, where is it? Reason, love, and truth. And the book is basically a debate between the three. And so truth will speak to love. 
and love will agree and like raise it up and then reason will come in and debate it. Right. So these three personifications uh, throughout the book um, go on. So what she wrote, though, the book got her killed. The only date we know is 1310 is that she was killed in 1310 in Paris because they had told her to stop circulating her book and she wouldn't stop this book, The Mirror of Simple Souls. Um, so what got her killed was probably that in the book she talks about how if we can get to full love, right, L, capital L, love, if our will can become full love, then we don't, we don't need reason anymore. Reason can go aside. And she said Christians who have fully replaced their will with God's will, they follow love. Christians who have not fully replaced their will with God's will follow reason. And she also insinuated that for the, the ones who had fully replaced their will with God's will, they didn't necessarily need the church anymore or its sacraments or its rites or its guiding. She didn't fully say that, but she sort of said it because they are fully love now. They are fully the will of God now. So they don't need it in the same way. Well, so she is burned uh, in 1310 in Paris. Um, they try to burn all of her books. But this is the weirdest thing that happened to her books. Within 30 years, we find her books, not just in French, but also in Italian and Latin and Middle English. They've been translated and they've been spread. The weirdest thing that happened is by 1400, within 100 years of her death, her book is being uh, given out around the region and it's no longer a bad book. It's no longer seen as dangerous. It is, uh, it's now being said that it was written by a monk, an anonymous monk, and uh, in fact, in 1927, it was published in English, and Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster wrote a preface to it. And in it, he says, this marvelous book work was written by an anonymous monk. It is not until 1946 that everybody figures out it's the same book. It's the same book. She was burned at the stake for a book that within a hundred years even was acceptable. Now, some have said, some of that's that woman thing. She'd written it, she's promulgating it around. I don't know. But I mean, within, within 30 years, they're saying it was a man who wrote it and it's okay, kind of. So it's an interesting thing. So, uh, so she calls, the church has two distinct levels, the church of the greater, and the church of the lesser. And the church of the greater are the ones who don't have a will of their own anymore. They just have God's will. And the church of the lesser are the ones who still have their own will. And uh, the church of the greater doesn't need the church in the same way the church of the lesser does. So um, it's a really good example of her perfect became the enemy of the good, right? Um, she really uh, called into question um, good people saying they should be perfect people. 
and that perfect uh, was the only acceptable. Uh, you wanted to be in the church of the greater. Now, this is interesting. I'm going to bring this up uh, because it's an interesting thing that Methodists don't believe anymore, but I'm going to mock them openly. I mean, you're going to change that. Uh, anyway, just because I love to, because I have lots of good Methodist friends. But Wesley originally, um, they've given this up, I'm told. Wesley originally believed that you could um, grow better and better and better in this life. And what he said was, you can be fully sanctified in this life. You can be made holy in this life. A person can increase, increase, and that's the right verb, but, you know, they can increase, 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 and be made holy in this life. Um, Calvin, if you know, like, three things about Calvin, you know that he hated that. He thought there's no way, there's no way in this life we're going to be sanctified. Now, Wesley wasn't saying exactly what she was saying with the free spirit movement, um, but it's, it's, it's in the family of can we be made holy in this life um, or, or do we need to wait till the next? Um, Methodists don't believe that anymore. Now, us Calvinists would say, that's right, you don't. Because uh, you looked up around you and saw the world and knew it for what it was, you know. But anyway, we're a little bit prideful about that, probably. Hence, not sanctified in this life. Um, but uh, the the main question was in Genesis, the story we have of our creation and the fall of creation. In Genesis, it says that the image of God um, was broken in us, right? That we are made in God's image, but somehow that's been twisted from the fall. So Wesley would say, it just got banged up a little and bruised. And Calvin would say, no, it got smashed in the ground and stomped in the head. And, you know, there's no bringing it back. Like, right. So it's they're different images. They're different images for what happened to the image of God in us in the fall. And and she has a little Marguerite has a little bit of that going on. Um, that um, within us, we can have, we can work toward God's will. And we can't, we can so set aside our own will in this life that we can be filled fully with God's will. It's not that broken. We can do it. And, and that's what she got in trouble for. 